A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia. In my clinic, when I treat sleep disorders, a lot of people will come with a lot of anxiety, really worry about what's going to happen to their health, to their body, to their brain if they did not sleep well, if they think they are losing sleep. Some of them even quote data from social media, from some published books, from wherever they can find to support the conclusion that if I'm not sleeping enough, something really bad is going to happen to me. Clearly, such kind of anxiety blocks our ability to relax, to really go with the flow and let sleep happen naturally. Then the question is, what is really happening in our body when we are sleeping enough versus not sleeping enough? Let's find out more from Dr. Benedict from Sweden. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep. I'm your host, Ishan. Our guest today, Dr. Christine Benedict, runs a sleep research lab in Uppsala University in Sweden. His team studies the effects of circadian disruption and sleep loss on our health and performance. Especially, they focus on the relationship between our sleep loss and our metabolism. So today, he will explain to us more from a research point of view exactly what's happening in our brain, in our body when we are losing sleep. Hi, Dr. Benedict. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep. Hi. So I know you are a researcher in the field of sleep medicine, and you have done a lot of great research in this field. If you say so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my wife is always saying I should not um, praise myself too much. Yes. So if you say this, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm curious, what got you into this spilled at the first place. What got you interested in studying sleep? Yeah, you know, there are so many different reasons. I have four reasons. They are actually right now 16, 15, 14, and 12 years old. So wow. when I started as a PhD student, they were all small babies. And I struggled a lot with sleep deprivation, and so did my wife, Francisca. And I really thought, you know, I have to do something about it, not only personally, you know, that I can improve my own sleep, but also to know what it means for me in the long run if I don't get enough sleep, you know, in terms of health, in terms of well-being. Because for me, it was obvious, you know, when we went through this never-ending period of sleep loss that it it it's doing something to you. Um, it's doing something to you, you know, your changes your perception of things you know I was always really eager to eat chocolate and I was also quite impulsive so I noticed some quick changes to my behavior not in a positive way yes at least when we speak about the the waistline yes and my stress resilience 
But this was, of course, not the only reason why I decided to do some research in the sleep field. I also was part of a lab when I started to work as a PhD student um, that was headed by Professor Jan Born. Jan Born is really well known for his work in the field of sleep and memory. He has shown that slow wave sleep or deep sleep is very important for the consolidation of hippocampus-dependent memories, and recently even for procedural memories, but we don't make this too complicated. So this was quite an interesting creative environment, yes, and I thought this is so cool, and Jan is a genius, and it was so much fun to be surrounded by all these people like Jan Born, Stefan Geis, Manfred Heilschmidt, Ines Wilhelm, Susanne Dickelmann. So if you just search for these people at PubMed, you will find a lot of um, high-profile, cool studies that have been well-cited, yes, in the field of sleep, and I thought, I want to become a part of it. But then, you know, in the end of 2000, no, in the beginning of 2009, Jan said to me, Christian, it's always important to go abroad. You cannot stay forever here in my lab. You have to become, or to, you have to develop into an independent researcher. And I really um, suggest you, you should find a new lab. So I found a new lab here in Sweden at Uppsala University. And actually, my host is a pharmacologist and geneticist. And it was really awkward a little bit because he had no clue about sleep. But he said to me, well, Christian, of course, come, you can work with me. And I know a lot of people here, Swedes are really collaborative. And I will help you to set up your own lab. And you see, now it's 2020, so 11 years later. I'm still at Ulster University. And I have been able to obtain funding and attract um, young research talents to build up my own research lab, the Benedict Lab. Mm -hmm. And yeah, since then, we have done a lot of um, studies with primary focus on sleep and metabolism. Wonderful, wonderful. Yes. So I'm sure our audience are eager to know more about what you have found in your own research. So for metabolism um, and for so sleep loss, I know a lot of people nowadays are not sleeping enough. And then if we are not sleeping enough, how that can impact our body weight and yes. our you know, eating habit? What are some major findings you have found? Yes. You know, what is really important in this context is that we put the spotlight on our brain, yes, because there we make the decisions whether we want to eat something or not, yes. And then we should maybe speak about some findings that I obtained in the periphery. So here. And let's start with the brain. So I already told you, I have a lot of kids. I went through periods of... Um, sleep loss and i really noticed that changed the way how i um perceived food right when i went grocery shopping and i saw all the chocolate bars they were they were really starting screaming they had voices the chocolate bars started to speak to me take me christian i'm delicious i'm good for you and my brain was quite responsive and i typically did this and filled my trolley with a lot of um junk food, candies, and all this stuff. 
that was actually not really um, appreciated by my wife. <laughs> but anyhow, I did it, and I really thought I have to investigate this. So we did here several behavioral experiments, but also an experiment where we used neuroimaging to investigate how the brain is influenced by sleep loss. And of course, you know, we may speak about this also at a later time point. You have to be careful. If we speak about sleep loss, sometimes people have this tendency to merge all the different types of sleep loss and just say, describe this as sleep loss, you know? So mm -hmm. there's sleep apnea, that's sleep loss. There's insomnia, that's sleep loss. Um, short sleep, that's sleep loss. Fragmented sleep, that's sleep loss. So it's, of course, quite um, heterogeneous and it's complex. And we know for many health outcomes that these different types of sleep problems differently affect these health outcomes. We know this, for instance, for cardiovascular outcomes, that sleep apnea, if untreated, is really harmful. Insomnia is not good either, but not to the same extent as an untreated sleep apnea. So keep this in mind. But anyhow, so what we used here in many of our experiments is either partial or um, total sleep deprivation to investigate what happens um, to your behavior. So we investigated then in one of these experiments, the brain response to food images. We were actually the first also to publish this um, back in 2012 in JCEM. And there we found that if you're sleep deprived, your one structure of the brain that is part of the brain reward system is very active. It's called the anterior cingulate cortex. And this area is very important in reward anticipation. And we know also from other um, research that obese people, they view images of food showing increased activation of this area compared to normal weight or lean people. And then we thought that's interesting because when our participants had not enough rest, this area light, also lighted up compared to when they had a rest, yes, a good night of sleep. And then we, so this was like the kickoff for many follow-up studies also done by other labs where they found even other areas of the brain to be influenced by sleep loss, areas that are important for um, you thrive to eat, but not only these areas, also areas involved in your ability to control impulses, impulses that come from the bottom of your um, brain, right? From the limbic system saying, come on, take this chocolate bar. It's delicious. Because normally you have your prefrontal cortex and you can somehow um, counter these kind of um, bottom-up um, yeah, feelings of this bottom-up drive to eat, yes? Mm -hmm. And we thought, okay, we should investigate this as well. So we used, for instance, a behavioral task called no-go-go task, where you should inhibit your response to food um, cues, in that mm -hmm. case, word cues. And we, again, found that if people are sleep-deprived, they have really issues to inhibit this response to food cues, this cognitive response. And that all together suggests we not only show an increased activity of areas in our, in our brain that are relevant for the drive to eat. No, we also see some kind of functional deficits of areas that are important to suppress um, these feelings, you know, to, yeah, to maintain the top-down control. No, I see you, chocolate, chocolate bar. I know that you're delicious, but I won't eat you. Because I will otherwise go up and wait, and it's not good for my health either. And 
or it's not good for my budget and so forth. And we lose a little bit this cognitive control. And this was quite interesting. And yeah, this is something that we found in the brain, but we went on. Or, yeah, yes. that is very interesting because when you talk about that, I remember for myself, I totally feel that I just never really know very clearly the research behind it. When I myself, when I'm sleep deprived, I drink, I tend to drink a lot of Coke. They just look so delicious to me. Yes. And sometimes I want one at noon, one, one in the evening. It just sounds like we won't have control to say, no, I'm on a diet or it's not healthy. I have to control it. Sounds like it's not only more attractive to us, but it's harder for us to make the right decision to really control this kind of impulsivity. Absolutely. That's true. So the brain reward system is on fire if we are sleep deprived. Um, you know, that are so important for these kind of um, behaviors such as searching for food and consuming food and areas that are important for rationalizing, for predicting also the long-term consequences of our behaviors such as the frontal cortex, they really suffer from sleep loss, yes? Because mm -hmm. they require the sleep to recover um, also from a functional point of view, yes? And that leads to a kind of, you know, to, leads to a misbalance in, in, in a way that the brain reward system dominates over these kind of, you know, rational centers. And that's why you're more inclined to choose the bad food. Yes, the unhealthy food. Yeah. It's not I, only the brain, I have to say, mm -hmm. you know, because we were always interested in investigating what happens in the periphery, so in the body, right. the or something. Because, you know, typically if we eat, our food has to pass the stomach and the... And of course, first of all, the oral cavity, then the stomach, and then the intestine, small and large intestine. And we investigated this because we thought, well, there are a lot of factors that are produced, for instance, called incretines, hormones that are produced by the intestine or the stomach that are known to play a role in food intake regulation. One very prominent food-promoting um, hormone called kratom that is primarily but not exclusively produced by the stomach, that, for instance, is increased if you suffer from sleep loss, as suggested by our studies, but not only our studies. You know, I should always, otherwise the people could get the impression I'm the only one who did this. There are also many groups from the U.S. and other European labs that have shown this, and also Asian labs. So your kratom is increased. And that's a very strong signal coming from the periphery once it reaches the brain to say, now it's time to eat, eat and reduce the energy expenditure. And other signals that are from the intestine, such as glucagon-like peptide 1, so it's called GLP-1, that, you know, act as satiety-promoting signals. And we know if we are sleep-deprived, these signals are not as quickly um, produced as they are when you're sick, as they are when you are well rested in response to food. So we, for instance, found in one of our studies that if people ingest food, it takes about 90 minutes more to reach the peak concentration of GLP-1 in your blood in response to food, right? And this 90-minute time window can, of course, explain a lot of... Um, undesirable behavior such as that if you are in a buffet situation that you take a second portion, a third portion, a fourth portion, and so forth, yes? Because the signals that should tell you your brain it's time to stop eating, to it's time to rest, 
they are not as effective under conditions of sleep loss. Oh, so not only our brain, but our body are sending us this signal and also stop us from uh, like doing the right thing. So both brain and body work all together. It sounds Absolutely. like we tend to eat more if we are not sleeping enough. Wow. Yes. And you know, what is also really important, what we often see in these studies and people that are metabolically healthy, so they don't have any issues such as type 2 diabetes or they are obese. We, I speak here about normal weight people that are metabolically healthy, really well trained. And they show all these changes that if you ex, um, experience sleep or uh, chronic sleep um, con um, loss conditions, may predispose you to go up in weight, just to gain weight. But what we also see after several nights of sleep loss is that the ability of the, the body to dispose glucose from the, um, from the blood circulation into tissues is impaired. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to make it too complicated. So everyone has heard about this. Oh, typically if I eat something, my glucose rises in blood and I have hormones such as um, insulin, a pancreatic hormone to make sure that this blood glucose is then um, transported into the tissues because it should not be too high in blood because this is not good for cardiovascular health and so forth. But we know that if we are sleep deprived, the brain sends also a lot of signals to the periphery. You should stop using this glucose thing, this glucose energy substrate. That's for me because I'm the selfish brain and I'm stressed. I had not enough of slumber last night. I really need this. So all your tissues that typically use glucose for, let's say, energy expenditure and other important metabolic processes, such as the skeletal muscle, stop using it, or at least reduce it. Reduce the use of glucose. Make sure that I get most of the glucose. And then we see that people who sleep deprived have these hyperglycemias especially if they then eat something that is rich in carbohydrates. And that is then often referred to, oh, you have, after several nights, kind of pre-diabetes, because a pre-diabetic um, glucose response to food, yes? And that's also quite interesting. But again, I think it's physiology what we describe here, because the brain is selfish and notice, oh, I have an energy deficit. So let's release cortisol. Let's release um, catecholamides. To tell the periphery, the glucose is for me. You can use non-glucose energy substrates. I want to have this because I'm stressed. I did not receive my, the rest that I require. And that's why the glucose must be for me. And that might be a reason why we see then also, you know, in the short term, these deregulations and glucose um, turnover. Yes. Oh, okay. So if we're not sleeping enough, the glucose tend to possibly piled up and they are yes. not get released normally and just uh, i can imagine that can cause a lot of health concerns but again you know but it's physiology because the brain is stressed and the brain is selfish it has you know it has a very narrow um, range where it tolerates fluctuations of you know energy supply and of course if it is stressed and it has not the chance to recover to rebuild energy storage during sleep Ed will notice that and will tell this periphery, you guys in the basement, no, you can use something else. The glucose is for me. Of course, in the long run, that might be problematic because if I expose myself to chronic sleep loss, 
I may then also um, provoke some kind of metabolic reprogramming of the tissues. And we have actually found in some studies where we took um, or collected biopsies from the skeletal muscle and from the um, fat tissue that there is actually an ongoing metabolic reprogramming. For instance, in the fat tissue, we see methylation changes that are in favor of storing energy. And this is, of course, something that we know sleep, can, sleep loss can cause if experienced chronically, right? That we go up in weight. But we will not only go up in weight, we will primarily increase fat mass. Commonly, we will reduce skeletal muscle mass because what we also found in the biopsy study is that the skeletal muscle starts to, in parenthesis, digest itself. It releases a lot of proteins or amino acids from skeletal muscle protein that are then used, for instance, by the liver to produce ketone bodies that can be used by the brain. So you see that in the long run, if you have not proper sleep, you not only go up in weight, you also run an increased risk for an adverse body composition. You go up in body fat while losing skeletal muscle. And that's, of course, something that is not healthy. Definitely. I know the, the weight machine I have at home, it can measure your body fat, your uh, muscle fat, and uh, uh, muscle portion. I noticed that when the weight change, that number definitely change also. One thing I want to clarify and ask you more about is the in research field, how much sleep count as sleep deprivation or partial sleep deprivation? In your research, what have you noticed? How many hours of sleep or how, like how many hours of sleep we lose may start seeing this kind of effects on our body? Sure, that's a very good question. I already touched on this earlier. You remember this, that I said it's important to keep in mind that there are different types of sleep problems. Yes. And if we now just speak about sleep quantity, you know, often these studies um, employ total sleep deprivation. That means you lose just a full night of sleep, you know, for instance, as occurs in night, among night shift workers, yes. But of course, you could say, if I'm recommended to sleep at least seven hours every night, and I would, for instance, sleep only five hours every night, yes, I would have in across a week, let's say, at least the working days, five days, I would lose 10 hours. That is already more than a night, yes, that's one and a half night, yes. So you could say, mm, maybe then we would see similar effects compared to those that we see after one full night of total sleep deprivation. But of course, you know, there's a lot of, I assume, I assume, I assume. That's why there are also studies where they have um, investigated how partial sleep deprivation influences metabolism, and there they see similar effects, but of course, not as pronounced often, yes. And of course, even there, we must admit, some researchers use them less than four, or they could sleep up to four hours, others say up to five and a half hours, some said, oh, I want to have it really mild, only six hours. And of course, depending on the deprivation, you see, of course, also their variance in the outcome, or variance in the study findings, yes? So this is something that is, of course, sometimes problematic if you try to integrate all that that have been published and try to make a conclusion. You have to admit that there's a lot of heterogeneity regarding the results, because so many sleep researchers use different types of sleep 
loss conditions or partial sleep deprivation conditions. And that makes it sometimes quite um, tough to compare the studies. But, you know, but if we, of course, we can criticize these because these are experimental studies and it would be better if all the studies would be harmonized in terms of what kind of intervention did they use. Maybe we should check what is the most prevalent short sleep condition in our society and we should go for this. I agree, but, you know, but an experiment requires anyway that you keep everything at a highly standardized conditions and it's quite demanding, staff demanding. So you really want to make sure that you have also the chance to capture the effect of sleep loss. And that's why you typically go for the strongest contrast, yes, which is then, for instance, total sleep deprivation. But of course, not everyone is suffering from total sleep deprivation. And that means, yeah, under experimental conditions, I see this, but you have to be careful if you extrapolate this to any type of um, sleep deficit. And, but you know, but, but in a way to address this is that you check the epidemiology because you could check this. There you have large scale studies that are either cross-sectional or longitudinal where they interviewed people and maybe also did some physical measurements to investigate the association of an, a factor and outcome variable. In our case, sleep problem, and then let's say outcome body weight. And there you clearly see that those who sleep between seven to nine hours per day, those are the ones that have the low risk, lowest risk to be overweight or obese. So I think based on that, you clearly see, yeah, that there is a reason why many sleep researchers and sleep foundations recommend the seven to nine hours to adults. Yes. Yeah, I really like one point you mentioned that I did not think about that because when you mentioned total sleep deprivation or you, if we lose one night of sleep, I was thinking, well, that's not me. I never done that. You know, I, I try to at least have some sleep every night. I never, you know, stay up late for the whole night, at least after I, I become this age, like when I was young, possibly I would watch a movie uh, up to the morning. But I was thinking, well, I, I possibly should be fine. But when you mention every day, if we just lose one to two hours, then a whole week, actually, we count like five days or seven days, we are losing one to two nights totally. And that's very scary, actually. It is. It is. But, you know, but of course, it is scary. But this is something that I always... Um, say and also mention in my conclusion if i speak to students or other people you know don't forget that the equation the health equation consists of many variables and sleep is definitely among these variables it's an important variable but it's not this solely um variable yes so we should not exaggerate the effect of sleep let's say on any um, health outcome or psychiatric outcome, you have to be careful or psychological outcome, sorry, because you have to be careful, yes, because I can only um, become obese if I'm also sedentary, if I have food available, if I have maybe, uh, you know, a low socioeconomic status. There are many factors that play in here. Genetics may have an impact. There's so much that you have to consider, things that you have learned as a child, you know, eating habits, meal patterns, and so on. All of that has an influence on you, yes? Stress. So don't reduce it only to sleep. 
Mm, so don't be overly panic, but yeah. monitor it and yeah, of course, make of sure course. we we try to sleep enough when we can. Sleep matters. No, no, no. Sleep matters, and it's a modifiable factor, isn't it? Of course, sometimes even if it is modifiable, we need professional help. Yes, and that's fine to search for professional help to um, improve sleep. But sleep remains modifiable, which makes it so. Um, interesting and also exciting from a research perspective yes because sleep has so many um, positive effects on health and well-being but again don't exaggerate this too much yes and just break it down to this variable and go outside and claim if you don't sleep you will die <laughs> yes. uh -huh. that's too simple yes Right, right. I know, I know that that kind of statement when people misunderstand that from median yes. gets people really anxious. Actually, could lead to possible it can contribute to worsen symptoms of insomnia. I definitely see people like that. I fully agree. Uh huh. And also, I think one question I get a lot from people is. You know, if we are losing sleep just for whatever reason people think is important in their life, can we make up? Can we just sleep a lot more during the weekend and then catch up our sleep so we reduce this kind of effects to our brain, to our body that you mentioned? Yes. And that's quite a good question because it has also some relevance for that what we discussed before with the metabolism. Because generally, irrespective of metabolism, of course you can, right? We all know this. If I don't sleep sufficiently, the next night, my brain will crave more slow-wave sleep and really deep slow-wave sleep, yes, in order to cope with this, to compensate for this um, previous sleep deficit. And what many people do nowadays on working days, yes, they have fixed and really not sleep-friendly schedules, and that's why they run short on sleep. And then over the weekend, they use this sleep to recover, yes, or the time and the, the leisure time to recover and to catch up on sleep. And there is actually one study from the Karolinska Institute led by um, Torbjörn Augustad, which is a very famous Swedish sleep professor, And they found that people that catch up on sleep over the weekend, but sleep too short during the week, have actually no higher risk or mortality risk compared to those who sleep as recommended the entire week. That was a study that was quite featured by the media across the globe, because then people said, oh, but that means even if I don't get enough sleep during the week or on working days, I can catch up over the weekend and I'm fine. But the problem is, you know, what happens if you then switch back from the weekend sleep to the work, working day sleep um, pattern, yes? So if you then have to um, continue from Sunday to Monday, you know, with your short sleep pattern, can it ride from the US has investigated this? And they found that already after the first night of short sleep, following your recovery sleep over the weekend, you see all the metabolic problems again, yes, such as an impaired um, glucose metabolism. That means, you know, you cannot catch up on sleep and have them like a buffer for the next week, and then it will may take until Wednesday or Thursday 
for the metabolic, adverse metabolic effects to occur. No, you see it right away on Monday when you had, again, your first night of poor sleep, yes. And that's quite important, yes, because many people use the findings like um, the finding by Torbjörn Orkestad to argue, you know, it's fine. But, well, then you say, but, but they, they don't die earlier because this is what mortality is saying, yes, but maybe their health lifespan is not as long, yes. They may live as long as the others that sleep as recommended but they may have not really a high quality because of disease and other conditions, medical conditions that require also treatment. We are fortunate today. We have good medical treatment and we can take care of this, but possibly, you know, you won't have the same quality as you would have if you would sleep um, the recommended seven hours per night across the entire week. Yet it's not only sleep duration, we both know this. It's also sleep quality that matters, your sleep disorder, breathing issues must be treated and so forth, yes. Yeah, catch-up sleep is possible, but be aware it does not provide you a buffer to cope with the metabolic implications of sleep loss. Right, so it sounds like catching up sleep, there are some positive effects, but that does not really mean you're fine. Does not mean there's no problem. Of course, I encourage everyone to catch up on sleep. Because what does that mean? If they can do this, there's a deficit and they have to compensate for this deficit. But the point is you should, if you have to compensate for this, then you should maybe think about there's something wrong, wrong all the five days or nights where I don't get as much sleep as I should. Because otherwise, why should I, I, why do I need the weekend to recover? Yes. From a sleep perspective. And honestly, also if you, you don't have any use of catch-up sleep over the weekend in a retrospective manner, because I cannot say on Saturday afternoon when I wake up and had 10 or 12 hours of sleep, oh, that's of use for my occupation performance that I showed on Wednesday. You understand? This does not work like this, because you cannot compensate retrospectively for this. So make sure that you get the sleep that you need every day on a daily basis. And there are ways and methods to achieve this, such as discussing with your employer, flexible work schedules and so forth. There are many ways of doing it and consulting um, sleep professionals like you. (laughs) Yeah. So use myself as an example. If I have the choice to have enough sleep every day, I would rather do that instead of cut my sleep short every day in order to work late and then try to catch up during the weekend and then next week continue five hours per day and then catch up on the weekend, that catch up sleep won't save me totally. I should still try to sleep seven to nine hours, whatever my body needs every day. That's the best for me. Yes, I agree. Cool. Yeah, this is very informative. And I know since you have done so many years of research on, on across all these areas. You recently published a book and actually been translated into different languages. Can you tell us more about your book? Yes. So first of all, I would like to explain to you why did I decide to write a book? Yes. Mm. Because there are many books about this topic we are aware of, you know, let's say why we sleep from Matthew Walker, but there are also many others, even see my professional people that actually do not do research, but are just interested in 
in health and lifestyle have um, published books about the topic sleep. But you know, but there's one thing that I don't like about these books. Often, if you read these books, you could get the impression, you know, if I don't meet all these sleep recommendations, my life is messed up. Everything will be just a disaster. Yet I agree that sleep is very important for so many aspects of our health and life and well-being, yes. We have, as I mentioned before, to, to consider that the equation of health, well-being and performance includes a variety yes, of variables. Sleep is among them and research has done a great job in the last 20, 30 years, even longer, yes, to highlight the importance of sleep. But we should not use sleep as a threat to wake up the nations. Yes, sleep matters for your health. We should use um, our knowledge to stimulate people to think about it, to paint them a picture of how beautiful sleep is and what we could achieve if we would have enough sleep. Because sometimes, you know, I must just say this as it is. I'm a little bit confused and even a little bit irritated if I see them these kind of statements like, if you don't sleep, you will get cancer and so on. And if you don't sleep, you get autism. I have done, I have done research in this field, especially in relation to brain health and so on. And I agree. There's no doubt. There's a lot of um, evidence in the field to believe that sleep plays a very important role for, let's say, brain health. But again, the equation consists of many variables. For brain health, it's equally important to be mentally active, to be socially engaged, interactive, meet people, yes, to be physically active. You should not smoke. You should treat your high blood pressure with antihypertensives. You, you know, there are so many factors that play here a very important role, yes? Sleep is among them. And especially if we then continue with the cancer story, I'm so concerned about this because often, you know, people just mix things here. Sleep is for sure an important um, period during the day where the immune system has to fulfill many of its important functions. You know, the adaptive immunity or early steps of the adaptive immune response are initiated during sleep and recovery and repair processes are ongoing in our body, natural killer cells are activated to identify virus damaged cells or cells that have been damaged and may develop into something, um, proliferate in something that you don't want to have in your body. But again, you have to think about, is it only the sleep or is it maybe a healthy circadian rhythm that we are referring to? And if you really dig deeper into this, you see, oh, maybe it's the healthy circadian rhythm, for instance, for the immunity that is so important. In other words, it's important that we rest. It's important that we expose us to darkness because then we release also melatonin. And that is a strong signal also for the immune system to start its work. Of course, sleep is the gold standard. And then you have even a lot of growth hormone and so forth. I don't want to make it too complicated, but you should just understand it's a very complex story. Yes, our health is a complex equation. There are many factors in it. With all that being said, I decided I have to write a book where we, in a positive way, yes, celebrate all the 
achievements that sleep brings, you know, to us every night. We have, you know, if you have a car, you have to go to the service once a year to check the engine and so on. Sleep is like, you know, the service. We get it every night for free. How cool is this? You know, my brain can recover from daytime challenges. My brain can sort or can go through wake experiences, make a selection, what is important, what is not important. We can stimulate creativity. We can facilitate immune response. There are so many things that are ongoing in our body because of sleep that is awesome and that also prepares us for the next wake period to be even better prepared for it. So we should celebrate sleep and we should really um, write this homage to sleep. And I did it in my book, but I also tried put it into a broader context. And that's really important, what I mentioned, you know? If you speak about, oh, if you don't sleep, you get cancer, and shift work has been classified as a possible cancer-promoting condition by the World Health Organization, then you should also think about smoking is far more problematic for your cancer risk, or if you regularly drink alcohol, or if you get in touch with chemicals, or if you have a family history for certain types of cancer. So don't reduce it to sleep. And even in that context, shift work, even if it is associated with poor sleep, I think the biggest problem of shift work is the circadian misalignment and that you detrimentally affect your circadian health. And that may cause a lot of issues also in your immune system to you know, fulfill properly all its functions, amongst others, finding the cells that could possibly proliferate and turn into a tumor or so. So this is the reason why I wrote this book. And another reason why I wrote this book is, you know, I think if we speak about people with sleep problems, we should not do the stuff that we say, you failed. You haven't slept the recommended seven hours. You have sleep apnea. You have not done that. And you will have a horrible future from a health perspective. No, we should say, hey, so where, what's our starting point? If we, for instance, think about um, sleep duration and someone would say, yeah, you know, I, I use a sleep tracker and I sleep every night six hours, but they tell me the recommended um, duration is seven hours. Then I say, but you have six hours. That's the foundation. And let's, let's start building something on this foundation, you know? That's great. You have already set a crown to build a, something on it. And then people are relieved. Oh, you really mean this? Seriously, like that? I, I thought you would say to me, no, you're an underperformer. No, you're not an underperformer. You just need some, you know, guidance, some help, a good frame to, you know, um, yeah, maybe guidance and manual on how to further improve your sleep. You know, we should stop stigmatizing these people. There are so many people, and I think it's not a service to the public if we threat them by saying, if you don't do this, you get cancer. If you don't get, do this, you get Alzheimer. No, we should turn this around and say, hey, sleep has so many good things to offer. What can we do to optimize your sleep? What can you offer me? Oh, you can offer me so much. That's a good starting point. You know, we know this from our kids. I have four, I told you. Positive reinforcement. This is what helps you also in the long term to change behavior and not threat. You know this as a sleep professional, right? 
Yeah, definitely. I love this philosophy because I was thinking, yes, playing the blaming game, self criticism,、yes. or being so threatened and so afraid, worry about sleep all the time, that won't really help us sleep better. And that's the problem with some of the books. Even you know the book you mentioned,、um, Why We Sleep. I see a lot of people after reading that book got really anxious because they are focusing on the negative consequences without really knowing what to do exactly. I like how your book installs so so much hope to people. That, but you know, but I just want a little disclaimer. You know, I'm of course, you know, Why We Sleep is a brilliant book. And Matthew Walker is a brilliant researcher. So this is here not meant to say that he has not done something that is really good. You know,、mm-hmm. of course I'm not saying this, but I just say you know it's always a matter how you convey the message. Yes,、right. and I think we need you know we have this tendency also in so many debates, society debates. Yes, that we always have this kind of negativity approach in our way how we discuss things. Yes, and I think this is not the way how you solve sleep. We have to have a positivity thing. We should celebrate sleep, and we should also, you know, go there where the patient is, and take the, the hand of the patient, and together, you know,、um, make the right steps into the or make the steps into the right direction. And there are so many options to improve sleep and to ease sleep problems. That I'm. I don't have a doubt that you will find a way of solving it if you struggle with sleep. Yes.、Mm-hmm. And on top of that, what is what I said also initially, it's so important to think about the different types of sleep problems. Right. Because you know you have sleep apnea, you can have parasomnias, you can have restless leg, you can have periodic limb movement disorder, you can have. Sleep on sleep onset in,、um, insomnia. You can have sleep maintenance insomnia. You can have you can have you can have you can have stress and you cannot relax. You can have children. There are so 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 many facts、uh, factors that play here a role, and that shows you you know there's not like a one size fits all solution, and it's complex. Sleep sometimes people think is a simple story. No, it's a complex story. And what is also nice about sleep, sleep is a mirror of the daytime. And if we have a lot of stress, a lot of problems, the you know the sleep will also、um, mirror that. We will have problems with our quality. We will have problems with consolidated sleep, sleep maintenance, and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think in psychology we call it tunnel view. Like、yes. if we only see one end of the story, and that's the one thing, and that's we fixed on it. How that's gonna help us? I really like how you encourage us to open up to see all these different, this whole picture. Just like as、um, sleep clinician, we have to be trained to understand at least different type of sleep disorder. Yes. Even though myself mostly just treat insomnia, but、yes. I still have to learn different sleep disorders. That way, I can understand the full picture. I can rule out certain things, refer them to the right sleep doctors to to test things out. And you know, and we should not forget about you know all the underlying conditions that can have sleep problems as a symptom. And if you think about these people, they might be so desperate. Because they have done everything what they have read in different books, 
and maybe read newspapers, yes. And they are desperate because their sleep is not getting better. But then maybe, you know, in the very end, if you get hold of the right MD or physician, they will make the diagnosis. It's not your sleep. It's something else, you know. Mm. If you, there are so, so many things, you know. If you just think about the reflux disease, it's such a common problem among adults. And what do we see, uh, say about people that, that suffer from reflux? Yes, you know, you should increase the head part of your bed to reduce the reflux of um, stomach acid. You should not eat too late in the evening, avoid alcohol, avoid too spicy food, and, and, and. Yes, go down and wait. You see, there are so many things. And then they may have a messed up sleep, and they are not thinking about the GERD. Yes, they think about, you know, the sleep. And just imagine, they go to a medical doctor, and the medical doctor takes some prescriptions to help you sleep. But that's not the problem here. So this is just a simple example, but there are so many conditions that can have sleep problems as a symptom. So I really must say I admire people like you working as health or sleep professionals, yes, because it's there are many, many options, yes, why a person may have problems with sleep. But on the other hand, you know, it's also good to have people like you because you take this challenge, yes, you accept this challenge. And I know that people like you will help all these people. People just have to, you know, the general audience just have to understand it's not as simple as some people may come away. I should not forget because you asked me about my book. It will appear soon in Japan on December 8th, but it is also available in Sweden, in Swedish, in German. So in Sweden, it's some, some, some. In German, it's... Um, Schlaf is the best medicine, which means sleep is the best medicine, and also in Russia. But I don't dare to pronounce this title. Yes, great. So it looks like your book now available in four different languages. Yes. But unfortunately not in English yet. Yes, why not? <laughs> <laughs> but the Japanese mer- uh, ver- uh, version that's going to come out this later this year in December, I can see they have the English words on it because sleep sleep yes. sleep <laughs> yes 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 mm. and we can find it on amazon so if any of our, our audience can read japanese it's a start right <laughs> i can build on it <laughs> yes awesome anyone can speak uh, japanese or read japanese can find it on amazon or any other stores to to buy the japanese version i'm so excited there's there's this kind of professional sleep book going into this asian market i think in a lot of Asian countries, not as much sleep researchers and or clinicians as European or Americans. Um, And I hope to see more and more books about this sleep topic in Asian countries. Yeah, yeah, so so do I. But you know, but I can tell you, of course, in Asia, you have so many good sleep researchers and chronobiologists. Mm. So I hope that some of them also dare to write a book, yes, because of course, it's also nice to have so many different perspectives, yes? This sleep is so everyday, like a new study finding. So I think in two years, I may have another chance to write an update. Great. <laughs> or someone look else. Yeah, look forward to it. And hopefully, we will be able to read it in English one day. 
Yes, Soho Bias. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. So I will put all the links, put them on the show note on our website, deepintosleep.co. And uh, I will put your lab information. If you have any um, lab website, be there. We will link it back to your website. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, And again, I also would like to highlight for all the listeners your contribution, because I think this is good, you know, that people... Um, that work as um, sleep professionals, yes, you know, try also to come, you know, to, to yeah, to, to use such kind of um, um, vehicles like this podcast, yes, to reach out and spread information, the good information about sleep. Because I know that there are many, many people that are extremely interested in sleep and would like to learn more about it, yes. And I think this is very very good and i highly appreciate this that you do this yeah thank you uh, i'm really appreciate you to come to the show and really share all this great work to the public to our audience i know our audience some of them are trying to learn more about sleep knowledge uh, some of them have struggled with some sleep challenges or want to understand how to sleep better how to improve life quality in general and or uh, improve their mental health in general. So I think your lab and you are doing a lot of great work and should be listened, should be heard by more people. Very appreciate you come. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah. So um, that's the end of the show. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. And I will put every information on the website. A lot of time, reporters or social media may interpret some research data with a strong bias that can cause a lot of anxiety within us. If you are interested in learning more about this subject, please feel free to check out Dr. Benedict's book. His new book in Japanese, Sleep, 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 will come out in December this year, and his two other versions of this book are already out in Europe in two different languages. I will put all this on our show note at deepintosleep.co. Please go there. On the show note, you will find all the links. You can also find Dr. Benedict's Twitter account at sleep underscore advocate. Also, if you have any personal experience to share about how sleep has impacted your own metabolic system, please feel free to let me know. You can either leave a message on our website, deepintosleep.co, or you can record an audio message for me on the website also. I would always love to hear from you. Thank you very much for supporting and listening to our podcast, Deep Into Sleep. I'm your host, Ishan. I will see you next week. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently, and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk, and our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed. Are you suffering from insomnia? I promise you the CBTI method in my course will definitely help you. 
even if several nights of better sleep, that would be a world-changing experience for you. I have had so many success from my insomnia patients who have taken this course over the years. If you know someone who are struggling with sleep, go to my website and check out my course at deepintosleep.co/insomnia. forward